Io mi chiamo Gerardo Cassarella, oggi è il 28 febbraio 2021. Is that good? Sì. How, how come you don't have a middle name? There was no middle names in Italy. It's an American thing. And then when I came here, when you do your confirmation, you have to pick a same name. So I kind of made my same name my middle name. And that is... I don't remember. Isn't it Anthony? No? I think it's Antonio. Hello, and welcome to Paramore. My name is Dan Casarella, and you're probably wondering what this show is. After all, the last time you heard from me, it was on Out of Love, a show where I explored different topics and perceptions on love to become a better officiant for my sister's wedding. That was on New Year's Eve. 2020, and the finale of that show was a few weeks afterwards. Well, now we're back with another family-based miniseries to talk, but more on that in a bit. The song you're hearing in the background is called Too Young to Know by Palmaria, an alt-pop duo that sonically makes you feel like you're on a field trip on the Italian coast. It's a song I used to listen to a lot when I was living in Los Angeles. Driving around contemplating my life and how living across the country away from home really helped me grow up. They're a band that lives in the UK now, but they're from a small town in Italy, much like the one my father, Gerardo, grew up in. And that's where the show today brings us. A few weeks ago, I was visiting a friend who's about to become a father in a few months. And it got me thinking about all the conversations that I wish I had with my father. He has a pretty atypical upbringing. My father, Gerardo Castarella, was born and raised in a small town called Bisaccia, Italy. He was born in 1959, grew up there, and then in 1972 immigrated with the rest of his family to America. As a child, I don't think I understood how unusual or unique a situation that is. You just kind of take these things, the differences in your life for granted. And as I get older, I realize I've really taken that for granted. I always assume I'll just be able to ask my dad about these things, and therefore I've never really sat down and talked to him about it. I never had a forced, pointed conversation about what it was like being a kid in Italy and what was it like moving from one country to another where you didn't know the language, where you weren't sure you were ever going to see your family again, and how those experiences shaped the rest of his life and who he would become as a son, later as a husband, as a father, and how those experiences, in a way, indirectly affected me. So I decided to sit down with my dad and finally have that conversation about what it was like growing up in Italy. What was it like coming to America? And really, a question I always had for him, and I hope every child asks their parents at some point, where do you come from? So, like out of love, I decided to turn that curiosity into a podcast. Paramore, a four-part miniseries about my father Gerardo growing up in Passaccia, Italy, and immigrating to America. Each part will focus on a different aspect of his life. Starting with post-World War II Italy, growing up as a child in Bisaccia, preparing to move from Italy to America, and finally, adjusting to life in the United States. On today's episode, what Italy was like after World War II, how the country recovered, and what life was like in Bisaccia, a small, poor Italian village. Before we could learn about my father and his upbringing, what life was like growing up in southern Italy, we need to understand what living in the country was like at the time. And it wasn't great. 
Unlike America, Italy had a lot of on-the-ground warfare during World War II on its soils. And when the war was over, much was left to be rebuilt. But with a slow economy, wiped out industry, financially it was a struggle to start over. And it was a struggle for the people to live there. That's the Italy my grandparents Gaetano and Angela grew up in. Now, throughout this episode and the rest of the series, you'll hear my father refer to them as Nonno and Nonna. This is Italian for Grandma and Grandpa, but they're my grandparents. The reason he's saying Nonno and Nana is he's contextualizing them for me. So anytime he says Nonno or Nana, he's referring to his own parents. On today's episode, I sit down with my dad to talk about what life was like for them growing up in Italy during the 30s and 40s, what the town of Bisaccia is like, and the suffering the town endured that gave it a sense of reckoning. So here's my dad. This is a story about how you were born and raised in a town called Bisaccia, Italy, a small town in Italy, and then you immigrated to America with your family in 1972. But there's a lot that happens before that and a lot of context about what Italy and Bisaccia was like during that time. We think of America after the Second World War as this very prosperous time, the rise of the suburbs, the rise of America as a superpower, Pax Americana. And it was not like that in a lot of European countries, especially Italy. What was Italy like post-World War II? Well, I was born in 1959, so I can only tell you what... I heard from none, 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 and also from the movies, because I think in general, post-World War II, Europe was very fascinating. And if you look at the movies from Fellini and the Sica and all those, they do a good job kind of documenting what life was like there. The war, I think, was somewhat traumatic for Nonna Nonna because they were 12, 13. So when they were growing up, the Germans had gone all the way down to southern Italy. So when the Germans invaded Italy, they went all the way down to our area in Sicily. So they they were there for a few years, basically. There was no conflict there between the Germans and the locals, you know, because the Germans had guns and stuff. And as long as you were able to do your work and they were left alone, they didn't, but they just went on their business. But there was a big air base about two hours east of Bisaccia. So both Nonno and Nonna talk about when they were little, they would hear the bombers go from Naples to Foggia. They never knew when, you know, when they were going to drop bombs, but I don't think there were bombs dropped in that, in that area. So it wasn't like a major conflict area, but it was occupied. It strikes me as curious why Germans would occupy what was a, a ally to them. This was probably more towards the end of the war, where Mussolini kind of defected and Italy basically switched sides. So once Italy switched sides, then the Germans were an occupying force as opposed to a friendly force. So they had control of that. And they came around to all the farms and they took the pigs and the jewelry and all that stuff. So, And, you know, there were 12, so you can imagine how traumatic that was. And after that, when I was growing up, it was still relatively poor, but it was kind of a happy time because what was happening is all the 
Western influence in Hollywood was eventually getting down to even smaller towns. Like, so we had the movie theater and, and all that. So, but, so that was kind of my World War II recollections. It was really bad, though, immediately after the war. You were mentioning the cinematic movement in Italy afterwards. You know, Bicycle Thieves is considered one of the greatest films of all time, one of the most realistic films of all time. And there's a scene in the very beginning where the job office has one job and it's the entire town fighting over these jobs. Is that really what it was like? Entire economies based on one or two jobs and people really having to have the resources to obtain them? I think so. I think so. You got to remember Italy is multiple countries in a way, right? You have the North, which is somewhat prosperous. So I think in the North, what happened after World War II, there was a kind of big booming entrepreneurship. So, for example, it was Serrano, right? That that got started after World War II. So a lot of these companies that are famous now, you know, fashion and manufacturing, all those Italian companies after World War II, because they had funds for recovery, they took advantage of that. So all these entrepreneurs were successful. In southern Italy, our area, Sicily, it was very poor, very farm-oriented. So people there just basically went on their normal farming business. They were always poor, so it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. And then you had like Rome and that area where I think it was bad after the war. And then slowly things got, got better as far as the economy. And Italy, they had a big referendum right after the war to decide if they're going to be a monarchy or a republic. So there was also a lot of fighting between the communists and the Christian Democrats, where we're like center, center right. And then the Christian Democrats ended up dominating the economy and the government for the next 40 years. Italy is shaped like a boot. Where on the boot is Bisaccia geographically? Imagine your ankle and draw a line from your ankle to the other side of the foot in between there. So Bisaccia is between Naples and Bari. Mm -hmm. Naples is on the west side and then Bari is on the east side. And Bisaccia is in the middle of those two cities. You, in preparation for this conversation, you were sending me some sections from a book you are about Bisaccia that you were translating from Italian to English. And I was wondering if you could read one of the passages that I have right here that you translated about Bisaccia. So this is actually one of my favorite books. And I didn't, I didn't get it until I was here and I was much older. And it was written by a professor who grew up in Italy. And then because there was no jobs there. He emigrated to one of the northern city, but he must have left when he was in his 20s. So he still had a lot of fun memories. So he decided to write this book. And in addition to just telling unique stories of different events that happened in the town. So this is a paragraph about just describing the, the town. And it says, a daring spur of the hill, speckled with humble shacks so full of grace. Little houses, so well-dressed, just dusted with that white lime that turned into silver in the sun. A thousand curious windows, like watchful sentinels on the field, far in the valley, 
Little houses, humble and strong walls, like the people who held them as treasures. So that's a great paragraph because he captured in that small paragraph, first of all, the beauty of the town, also the simplicity. There was no paint in the houses, right? So it was, they used lime to paint the houses. And then the windows, everybody talked out of the windows there, and you always had a view in the streets. And then the fields for the farmers. And then, you know, the analogy of the strong walls and the strong people. So it very much does look like in pictures, like a fairy tale town, because it's all these little houses. They have, they're tan and they have these reddish brown roofs. And it almost looks like it's on top of a forest of hills. And it's very, very small. Do you think that's a, a good description? Do you think that's an accurate description or is it a little romanticized? It's definitely romanticized, but it's also accurate. You know, when I first read that, it, it resonated with me. I said, I have to translate this because not just for me, but for you all to kind of understand what it was like. I mean, you can go back there and the old town is pretty much untouched and similar. Obviously, the people are different, but, but I, that does a really good job describing the town. And what was, when you were growing up, the main economy of the town? What was the industry of the town? Farming. And my dad was Mason. So Mason, my uncle, was a blacksmith. So trades and farming. There was no industry per se. Nothing. There was no factories, no warehouses. It was basically farming that sustained the whole economy. And what also sustained economy is the people emigrated, maybe like 25 to 50% of the male population emigrated to different countries. And what they did is they sent money back. That was a big input into the economy, all that money coming back. And then when they come back and they spend money. So it was really a town that was self-sufficient on its own resources. It wasn't necessarily contributing a certain product or service to the overall Italian or even the overall local economy. No, pretty much self, self-sufficient. self The town in general was self-sufficient. The area was self-sufficient. And everybody was pretty self-sufficient in the sense that everybody had a plot of land. They grew their wheat. They took the wheat. They took it to the mill. They got flour. They stored the flour. So they had flour for bread and pasta and all that. They raised a pig. So they used the pig for meat, sausage, all that. And then they had the farm for fruits and vegetables. They had the vineyard to make wine. They had the milk to make cheese. What else you want? You got milk, you got cheese, you got wine, you got prosciutto, you got pasta. Pretty, pretty good life, right? And that, your family had a farm too, right? They were farmers? Yes. So my, my grandfather was born and grew up on a farm. And then I think in the 20s and the 30s, they, he bought a small house in the town and used to go back and forth. And then I think my father, Nonna, was born in Basacha, but they had a farmhouse where they spent most of the time. So during the war, they spent all the time in the farmhouse because they were working there anyway. And unless when Nonna had to go to school, he would walk from the farmhouse to school and back. How far was that? I mean, when I, when I was little, I thought it was like far, but it's probably three, three miles. You don't think that's far for a kid? Nah, that's, you know, when you walk, when you're there, you just, you just walk all the time. It's not a big deal. You had to walk. There was no buses when he was young. 
there were buses, but buses came once a day, and there was one bus they went east, one bus they went west. None of these say used to once in a while, and the bus came, and he had to go to the farm. He used to because he couldn't afford to pay the ticket. He would just hop on the back, and one time he got in trouble because the driver saw him. He went around a curve and he fell. And he used to, if I remember correctly, when he was hijacking on the back of the bus, he would have to jump when he would get off the bus, right? Because if you jump down, you're going to tumble onto the road. And so he would have to time his jumps to get up so he could catch the air and land at a softer rate. Yeah. Plus the, where the farm was, there was like a big curve. So he had the time getting off the bus. So anyway. And wasn't there also a swimming pool story about Nano? Yes. So there was no irrigation. There was no, there was no power. And the farmers had no power, no running water. No heat, obviously. So what they did to water the plants is they would have a tub of water that they would have on a higher ground. And then between the rain and also just natural streams, they would fill those those tubs, if you will. Imagine like a huge, you know, bathtub. And then <clears throat> when they needed to water the plants, they would let the water out the bottom and then they would drink trenches to the fruits and vegetables and that's how they would water so one time i guess in summer it was hot and when he was little he thought there was a pretty pretty deep tub it must have been if i remember maybe like two or three feet no more than that so he decided that he, you know that he was gonna jump in the water fortunately he didn't do a heads first so <laughs> i don't think he did it again or we wouldn't be here when did the town get electricity and heat and power and all that? I'm sure in the town itself had electricity, probably, if the guess, 30s and 40s, they had electricity and running water. But that was just in, in the town. So outside of that, there was no, the farms didn't have any electricity. There's another description from that book that I want you to read. This one is about the people in the town, the people of Basacha. Okay. Tough, tenacious, ingenious, and patient people. Peasants, farmers, winemakers, small breeders who'd for centuries lived in close harmony with the handkerchiefs of land that were often transformed with loving care into authentic gardens. Noble souls that from that land on the ridges, one of the most rugged areas of Italy, drew from a single, stunted annual harvest support for the body and vigor for the soul. Genuine people devoted to hard effort, proud and impervious to all adversities and sufferings. Resolute populations who made suffering an existential philosophy, always ready to face adversities with a sense of humor and to carry on with a smile on their lips. A friendly, supported, uncomplicated, loyal, and sincere community, always cheerful, with the doors of its generous hospitalities always open to all. So this is also a great description, and again, in one paragraph, captures a lot of the characteristics. So Bisaccia actually has a nickname called Gentle Bisaccia because it had a reputation for hospitality so that people appreciated that and then again the the people in Basaccia were as it says here both tough but also loving 
And they really took pride in whatever they did, whether it was building a house, creating farming, or making wine. They really had a passion for that. And then it was very, very rugged in terms of the land wasn't flat. If you see some of the pictures, there were mountains and everybody had their own plot of land and they made the most of it. They worked hard. And by working hard, in addition to being self-sufficient as far as food, there was also a sense of community. For example, when you had to harvest the wheat, right? What would happen is you would get your neighbors and your neighbor neighbors, they would come to your field. One day they would knock it out and then you would go and help them out. So instead of paying labor for people to do that, they, they did that just by, and when you do that, you know, you build up a lot of sense of community and in a good report there. It was a pretty hard life, if you can imagine, but they see, they never, you never really complained a lot. You know, they just accepted what it, what it was, made the most of it, and found joy in what they did on a daily basis. And then Sunday was a day of rest. So everybody, you know, kind of got together, you, you know, so it was, it was a pretty wonderful way to experience that. Something that stands out to me in that description is the underlining repetition of suffering. What was that suffering? Was it just the physical labor of of being self-sufficient on those farms? Was it just being in poverty? Why was there such a emphasis on suffering in Basacha? Or is that not an apt description? Well, because life was hard. The physical labor itself, I don't think they really minded that. But what was hard is when you lose kids yeah. and husbands and wives from disease, malnourishment. So there was no no doctor in town, probably had to go a few hours or doctors traveled. So, you know, Nonna lost a brother when he, I think he was 10. Nonna lost a sister and that wasn't an exception. Yeah. So that... That was hard. I think probably that was a harder thing for them to deal with. You know, as far as, you know, the hard work, I don't think they minded that. Obviously, we had a few earthquakes here and there, so they had to deal with that. The Germans, you know, all that stuff. But a lot of the suffering is from losing people that they loved. We're living in a tumultuous time during a pandemic now, but I, I think we really take for granted how healthy the world has been, even 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, when there was a lot of malnourishment in different countries. There was a lot of diseases that, thanks to vaccines, we no longer have to deal with. And it now almost seems, especially in America, so far-fetched that you you could just very easily lose someone to sickness. Yeah, especially the child mortality. I think the child mortality rate was was pretty high back then because... You didn't have running water. You didn't have a lot of the sanitary things that we have. So once you got sick, it was downhill from there. Your father, Gaetano, and your mother, Angela, were they of similar families? Were they both families of farmers in in the small town? Or or was there any difference in in the types of work and upbringing they had? Uh, Pretty similar. My grandfather was older. He was a farmer. He was a mason. My grandmother, I never met. She was a farmer. And then, you know, there was a farming town, farming family. So from that perspective, they, you know, pretty similar. The only difference is that 
my grandfather, Nono's side, he was a mason. So they did both farming and they did mason. My other grandparents and Nono's side were just farmers. And how did your parents meet? There were two towns, Bisacha and Guardia. That's this one. I know exactly how far they are. 19 kilometers. Wow. Because I was going to run that. Which, which for American listeners is roughly how many miles? About 12, 13 miles. Okay. You didn't really have a lot of interaction between the towns. You know, they were kind of stayed in their own little worlds. But when they had a feast, so each town had, had several times a year they had a feast. So people would go and go and participate in the feast. And so one of the, one of the feasts, I guess, none I none of met. And then they went on from there. These feasts were such big parts of Italian life, especially for the small towns. What did a feast encompass? In Bisaccia, Feast of St. Anthony, and it's pretty much similar now. It was a whole week of celebration. It was a combination of going to church for, for masses. At the time when I was growing up, they also actually had a livestock fair where they would bring like donkeys, cows, pigs in, on a soccer field. Mm-hmm. And that's where you would go and buy your livestock for the year that, that you would raise. So, and that was, I remember when we were kids, that was fun, fun to go to. So they, they had that kind of stuff. And then the day of the feast, they had a procession. They usually had a, a bandstand where they would have, you know, both local bands and then Sometimes they would bring singers from outside. That they would do opera, popular music, and then they had vendors that would come with cookies and selling stuff. So it was very festive atmosphere, and it's kind of like for them going on vacation. You know, we go we go away on vacation. The feast was kind of their vacation because for a few days they would you know not work, and they would just get together with family, do the procession, walk around town, and so. That's those are all the feasts were around the saint. Why was Saint Anthony the big feast? Is that across Italy? Is that specific to Bisaccia? Why was he so prominently celebrated? Every town is its own saint, so I don't know the full history, but I'm assuming at some point Saint Anthony went through Bisaccia and they got his relics and they decided to pick Saint Anthony. Guardia has San Gaetano is their patron saint. So every town kind of picks its own, probably from cultural and historical uh, reasons. Yeah, they were very religious experiences, and they would have they would create the saint for the procession, right? Yeah, yeah. But Italians are in they're very religious in that sense. But the other thing that happened post World War II Italy is there was the church has always been very powerful and influential in Italy over the years. And the church was almost like a kind of a master to everybody. So after World War II, when you had the communists kind of came in, there was more of a skepticism of the church. So people were still very religious, but, you know, they didn't, the, the feast was, was more of a celebration of the town. And, you know, obviously the older ladies went to church and the men just hung out at the bar. Well, there there also was a big connection between the fascists and the Catholics in, I guess, pre and during the the war. Mussolini was very close with the Pope at the time. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know the details, but the church played a role in just about, they were close with the king, they were close with the fascists, so it's, you know, very complicated. And over the years, people remember that stuff, so, you know, they become a little bit leery of organized religion. Now, on the other hand, I remember my grandmother, a nun aside, she was very religious. She would go to church, she would pray in the fields, but... In that case, it was a direct relationship between them and God, as opposed to having the church as an intermediary. So they had that connection with God, but it wasn't through priests or things like that. So they were, you know, the church was kind of a, a vehicle for them to, you know, get together and things like that. But did your parents go to school, or were they just brought up through their respective? industries, farming and, and masonry? From what I you know, f- gather from conversation, there must have been a requirement that you would go to school through fifth grade, mm-hmm. when, I think when Nona and Nona were growing up. So Nona talks about her parents would go to the farm, she would go to school in the morning for a few hours, and then when she was done, she would go to the farm and help out. And I think Nona, Nona did the same thing. But it wasn't taken that seriously, so I think they they went to school enough to learn to read and write and kind of do the minimum that they had to do. Now, after World War II, the other thing that you may have seen in that video is that Italy was was very proactive about educating adults mm-hmm. because they realized that obviously, in order for the country to grow and prosper, they need to educate especially in the South, big farming community, fifth grade education, for them to be able to thrive, they had to have education. So they had a big program where they encouraged um, adults to go to school at night. After work, they would get together and they would have a teacher go and teach them literature, writing, and those kind of things. But even not having gone to school, you know, Nonna, for example, and his father were able to build houses and they figured out geometry just from experiential learning. So they didn't, even though they didn't have the formal education, they could make sure the houses were strong enough and designed properly and all those things. Yeah, I mean, I majored in radio, so I don't know anything. But I always love telling this story. I told it on the other show too. But when when your father, Gaetano, proposed to your mother, Angela, they brought a band with them. And then every time I bring that up, you seem very subdued as if that was such a normal thing, as if I would have ever been privy to something like that. Yeah, it was a serenade. One of the other things that they did is a lot of singing, because in the feast and even when you got together with your friends, you would goof around and sing. Somebody would have a guitar. And so people had that artistic side of them, and serenading was just a natural... I mean, people have serenaded... Forever, right? Yeah. So, you know, especially in Europe. So it was kind of a, it was kind of taken for granted. Next week, Gerardo's childhood in Basaccia. Paramore is a production of WeWo Media and is recorded at Green Street Studios. It is hosted and produced by me, Dan Casarella. The show is mixed by our engineer, Jake Katz. Aaron Bradley is our art director. The opening and closing theme is Too Young to Know by Palamaria. 
You can listen to them on Spotify and give them a follow on Instagram at Palmaria Official. Special thanks to Julia Pugachevsky for her help during this series. Follow the show on Instagram at Out of Love Show for more pictures of Bisaccia and Italy from the 1960s. We'll talk to you next week. Stay lovely. <laughs>